This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, Nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Asall. And you're listening to The Conversation. All right, you there, Neil? I'm there. How are you, Angus? <laughs> I am still alive, ready to record another introduction. Looking forward to this. You want to uh, tell our folks who it is? Yeah, so this is Scott Douglas, and he is the executive director of Greater Birmingham Ministries in Birmingham, Alabama. The organization is an interfaith organization, and it brings together over 20 different faith groups. And Scott has been there for over 20 years. They do all sorts of things like provide economic relief, uh, they do food programs, but they also do more than just that day-to-day outreach. They also pursue structural changes uh, to the Alabama Constitution and legal code and are very much involved uh, in the legal world. And Some of their projects have involved public transit, for example, and anything that really tries to see uh, social change uh, from the bottom up in Alabama. Right. And, and I mean, we, we love kind of the what are the invisible structures. I mean, that's what we talk about in this project all the time. So that was definitely something that kind of drew us to uh, Scott. I actually learned about him through a conversation I had with um, Alexa Mills at MIT's Community Lab, they had had Scott up there as a fellow. They have a fellowship program every year, and he'd been up there in 2011. And um, I had just been in a lunch conversation with Alexa, and she was, you know, we were talking about the project. And I said, well, who would you want to hear in a series like this? And she said, well, you know, have you thought about talking to uh, someone down south about kind of civil rights issues? And I actually mentioned to her that at the beginning of the project, Mike and I had been, you know, we'd been designing this gigantic spreadsheet of what are all the fundamentally new issues we'd want to bring into a project like this. And we had a long conversation about race and gender and were those issues still fundamentally new or are we still fighting the battle of the 60s? And uh, Alexa just stopped and she was like, you know, that's kind of a ridiculous assumption. What is a fundamentally new idea varies radically based on what part of the country you are. She's like, you should just go talk to Scott and see what the status quo is in Alabama today and think about some of the things that you take for granted in other parts of the country and see what the battle is down there. You're having an interview on the future with somebody who lives in a state that idolizes the past. <laughs> so I think that welcome to Alabama. What is sort of what is the, the crisis of the present that you're dealing with here? 
Yeah. <clears throat> Let me begin this way. Here at Greater Birmingham Ministries, this is kind of an example. We've got to follow the trail to the future by looking at what's happening to the people we're most concerned about. We're a faith-based organization, and, and so our constituency are the low-income, marginalized families, communities, and neighborhoods of the Greater Birmingham area. So we have a food pantry. We always interview the people. We give free food to you. got to qualify. you got to have a low enough income and that kind of stuff. But we also talk to them. What brought you here? It's food. They obviously stupid food. <laughs> well, what got you in the condition that uh, you had to come here for free food? Well, uh, I had a job, but I lost it. Well, how did you lose your job? Well, uh, my car broke down too much. I, I missed too many days. I was late too many times. And I was now I was fired. And no bus goes to um, to my workplace. Or I caught the bus. This is another story. I catch the bus, and the bus was late so often, I lost my job. So what we see as a immediate and visceral hunger issue, if you trace it back, is a public transportation issue. And Alabama is a state that by constitutional amendment, does not fund public transportation. Are you serious? I'm very serious. Even before Rosa Parks sat on the famous bus, public transportation desegregation movements were starting across the, mostly in the Midwest. And as a preventive measure, they passed a constitutional amendment in the state of Alabama forbidding the use of state gas taxes for public transportation. Right. Now, public transportation was the way that white workers got to work, <laughs> you know. So my point I'm trying to say here is what are we um, up against in Alabama? To make a long story short, everything that involves justice in Alabama is a state constitutional question. No state constitution is perfect. But Alabama's state constitution is almost perfect in preventing the emergence of, the appearance of, the semblance of a participatory democracy, no matter what we're fighting for. Now, you have to know that Alabama has over 800 constitutional amendments. <laughs> it is the longest state constitution in the known universe. You know That's incredible. Well, we, we think of it as an achievement. <laughs> the United States has like 27, you know, you know. <laughs> So when other people think about if there's a problem in your city, in your state, let's bring the poor people and their allies together. Let's conduct a campaign to win. Let's have a referendum and stuff. It's a long-term struggle. It's harder to do that here. Martin Luther King uh, marched against it. Rosa Parks sat on it. What is it? It's the Alabama Constitution. Every civil rights battle we've had was ultimately the structural opposition, put it that way, was the Alabama Constitution. It was the Constitution that had the Jim Crow laws embedded in it, not just the policy of Birmingham or the policy of Montgomery, the policy of Selma. It was a Constitution that they put in the amendments after the Civil War to implement the poll tax and the grandfather clause and all those kinds of things. It's the Constitution. So actually, we uh, democracy is constitutionally denied in Alabama. And every victory, every victory that Alabama is famous for, the Civil Rights Act, the marches in Birmingham that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door and removing him, all that resulted in very important federal intervention 
in the governor's style of Alabama and, and thus bringing victory to Alabama and other states around the country. But it, it didn't change Alabama. I mean, Alabama never voted for any of those things. Alabama never chose a future in which uh, all people are equal. Alabama never chose a future in which all kids, uh, school children, are equal and deserve equity, you know, in funding of public education and stuff. So when you say uh, what are the problems you're facing now, two of the major ones we're dealing with there are public transportation funding, getting more of it so more people can get to where they live, work, play, and get educated using public transportation. You don't have to need a car to be successful in life. And immigration justice, which is a new issue for us as Alabama has found a new Negro <laughs> in terms of Latino immigrants to, uh, to jump on. Yeah. So anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that uh, Alabama never really re-entered uh, statehood, right? <laughs> Who's this serving? Like, why is this still here? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we didn't know. Uh, we got involved in public transportation and thought it was a city fight and started demanding that the city spend more money on transit and why don't you do better and stuff like this. And that's when we figured, they said, well, the state should help. And so that's what we found about that constitutional amendment. Around the uh, turn of the century, well, 2000, right before, a movement got started here to revisit the entire Alabama Constitution. And we joined that movement 12 years ago and said, yeah, let's do that. And the more we explored, we found out that following the uh, betrayal of Reconstruction in 1877 when the federal troops pulled out, they had built up a populist movement. Now, neither white women nor black women could vote, but black men and white men could vote between the late 1870s and, and, and 1890s and stuff. They were taxing the rich to pay for free public education for white kids and black kids. That made some people mad, you know, the 1% of the day. <laughs> and literally, well, 1% then. <laughs> Maybe 0.5%. 0.5%. So a unique coalition came together to squash that uh, populist movement by race baiting, and they successfully divided what had been a unity between poor blacks and poor whites that was formed for the first time in Alabama. That unity was broken by the use of racism by the bosses, by the rich of the time. They even had black and white demonstrations um, in small counties demonstrating for public education funding. In two cities, the sheriff's offices fired on the people and killed people who were demonstrating there. When you want to know how come poor black people, poor white people don't cooperate more, well, death has been the reward for that <laughs> in our histories. But anyway, so they, the future of capitalism in Alabama, of corporate power in Alabama, were the big land barons of the old plantations, which they had kind of regained power on the sharecropping and, and tenant farming, and the emerging industrial sector uh, in Alabama, which was a big one, coal mining and steel making. In 1870, the big steel companies migrated here. Uh, U.S. Steel was formed out of this. J.P. Morgan, the banker, financed most of it. So the, the corporate elites and the big land barons came together to construct this new constitution that protected them from being taxed. And because the black voters had voted for these taxes, voted for public education, civic improvements at their expense, the key thing was this disenfranchise them. 
And they learned the language of that from the 1890 Mississippi plan because the 14th Amendment, of course, had been passed to guarantee blacks the right to vote, at least black men. So if you can't use race, what can we use? They used the grandfather clause. An adult male could vote if his grandfather was a property owner. Well, if you are a black man, 21 years old in uh, 1900, more than likely in Alabama, your grandfather was a slave and slaves couldn't own property. Or the literacy test. <laughs> and most importantly, the poll tax, right? Because if you're a sharecropper, it was like a dollar and fifty. That was like a month's wages. So embedded in that constitution then is the spirit of breathing violence. Because their motivation was to capture the security of their corporate and land baron status and make it permanent. And you can't do that without fundamentally denying humanity to all of God's children in some very basic fundamental ways. And stuff, and we still live with it today. As, as we said, progress in Alabama is a constitutionally prohibited activity. <laughs> you can go to jail for that. Yeah, it's it's bizarre too, because I mean, the ways that all of these sort of class things are just tied in so tightly with all of the race questions. Yes. Can one be solved without the other? I mean, can you, you know, I, I was talking to um, an urban historian up in Buffalo mm -hmm. named Henry Lewis Taylor. One of the, the, his concerns about the present is that we've lost the enemy and that there was a time when you could have said, this person is the enemy. Here's a system of institutionalized racism and there are figureheads of it. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about now, and this, this goes for class too, I think. It's hard to spot this stuff because it's buried. You know, this is a constitution. It's structural. It's, yeah, it is. And that was exactly what he said. It's structural. Yeah. Is the shift of these systems of inequality from people who you can recognize and an overt form of racism or classism into structure, is that a new challenge? I, it's not a new challenge. I think what we have to come to grips with, the world really is round. <laughs> I mean... We go to one horizon, and guess what? There's another horizon. <laughs> you had to get rid of the Bull Connors before you could see the structural. What did they tell you when you talk to the newspaper people? They say, well, give me a story. My readers don't want to hear about the, the narrative, about the facts. They, they, they want to hear a story, right? Bull Connor was a story, right? George Wallace was a story. Structural racism in 1960? What's the story in that? You know, you're building a house or what? <laughs> you know, people think that the civil rights movement and all big epochal movements involve conscience, and they do. They also involve consciousness. I mean, you can't struggle against what you're unaware of, right? The Klan as the iconic carriers of violence, the Bull Carter, the iconic Southern male, white male resistance, George Wallace, the iconic... Uh, neo-populist racists. You know, these were historic figures in myth and reality, but they were, we wouldn't get to what they represented too much later. From Jim Crow segregation, Bull Connor should have been the target. But after Bull Connor's gone, the Civil Rights Bill passes, we enter a period of been there and done that. If the invisible structures of inequity then are kind of the, the challenge to seeing them, what happens if we don't see them? What's kind of that hypothetical scenario? If we go down the road, everyone's willing to say, oh, this world is post-racial. It's a level playing field and these other people just aren't competing. 
I've had people in this project say things similar to that. Ooh, yeah. Say that view prevails. What happens to us? That's a very low quality of, of, of democratic life, but it could happen. If there are powers who are protected by that kind of, of denial, it could happen. Uh, that's all it takes is sufficient power to keep a certain segment of the population distracted. Racism is a good distraction. Immigrants are a good distraction. War is always a good distraction. <laughs> I mean, every time Reagan got in trouble domestically, he invaded somebody. <laughs> you know, when you take your grenades and your beach towels on an invasion, that's for distraction purposes. They aren't distractions for those who are fighting for equity and justice. They know these things. They are distractions for those who have yet to join in the struggle for their own liberation, for their own awakening, right? But Joda Plummer was a good example about that in 2008 election. The guy that Obama met in a rope line in some place, and uh, he asked Obama about his uh, tax on the rich more. And Obama shocked him by saying, well, I don't want you to raise taxes on the rich. And Obama asked him, are you rich? He said, no, but I will be one day. It's not whether they could vote for Obama or not, but when will they start voting for themselves? <laughs> you know? It's like the old cartoon, you know, I guess it was one time where you would make a horse go in a certain direction by dangling a carrot in front of him. The only way to keep the horse going is to have him on a carrot that he never reaches. In this case, uh, let me be advocate for informed selfishness. <laughs> you know, if you can't be enlightened communalists, <laughs> informed selfishness would be a good first start. <laughs> Did you know that historically white workers in the South thought manufacturing work was slave work? Because in the rural South, the goal was to own your own, have your own farm. The people who were doing the blacksmithing, making the plows and the plowshares and stuff, were slaves. What we now call uh, building trades, slaves in the South, right? Talented, skilled people, but they were doing the work for the master. So it was the relationship that formed this image among independent but poor dirt farmers or even some merchants that working for somebody else was slavery. That is deep in the Southern pathos. There's another amazing historical connection there. Yeah. It makes me think of some conversations I've had recently, a, a string of them that have sort of mentioned education. And one was with a guy named Puck Mickleby. Yeah. And when I was talking to him, like, what's the crisis that we face now? He had a nice way of saying it. He was like, it's our grayware. We hold our assumptions to be truths, and we can't look at them as assumptions. And oh. so we are making decisions that are sending us down a dangerous direction. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting that he diagnosed what we were just talking about. It's our brains. It's, it's what we're willing to entertain. Are we willing to think about, are we willing to question ourselves enough to put our own assumptions aside and see the structures. that That's a sign that evolution is still going on. Yeah, yeah, and it is, you know. <laughs> what it says is Jack Nixon movie. You can't handle the truth. Yes. <laughs> you know, and the way of our not handling it is not seeing it. We have to acknowledge it exists to deny it. Denial is really a statement of a level of consciousness, <laughs> as much as we hate it. Is that a new problem? What? The fact that we can't even see it. Oh, no, no, no. Remember, this is the problem with history. For the current bandwidth of human beings, right, in this flash, history is receding, 
as fast as the future is being revealed to us. And it's a lot. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> For gray matter. <laughs> For gray wear. And this is coming at us has to connect with that which is receding from us. And as we make those things fit, are we lying about our past or lying about our future? Maybe both. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe, yeah, maybe that's what's always happened. That's always happened, and some of us, not me, of course, the other guys, (laughs) you know, are doing it to distort my possibilities for equity. And when they see me, I'm destroying their possibilities for certainty. <laughs> certainty that they are being the power they're in now. That's why people who live at the same time, in the same place in history, can have wildly different views about what's going on, look at the same set of facts. <laughs> the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Thank God for the opportunity. <laughs> free at last, free at last, go to hell. <laughs> So if we've always had this sort of, I don't know, it's almost like a plurality of of realities, like all these different people who all have their own realities in their their individual moments in history. Uh, But it does seem like at some moments, a lot of people agree on a problem and they make a big change, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you think we're at a moment where a lot of people are coming together to agree inequity is a problem? Or do you think we're still fragmented into lots of different views of the world where we're not even having that conversation? I think the combination of that plus some other things, it's kind of like uh, the human project all over the world is tension between the individual and the collective. My God, you just got to like the base level of this entire series. (laughs) You know, and that's not a bad thing, but it's a tension. It's the yin and yang, the plus the minus, you know, the matter, the anti-matter. It's the necessity of the duality, yeah, yeah, tension, dynamic tension that runs throughout history, and every solution that's been imposed on it has failed. <laughs> has failed with an improvement, right? A United States is an experiment. Anybody tells you the experiment is over is trying to uh, squash the results of it because it's still going on. It's still going on, and that's what I like about it. I'm a patriot to the American experiment. To me, no one has the right to foreclose on it. <laughs> I think the only thing we can approximate is, are we gaining? In that ultimate move towards equity? That's right. Yes. In the move towards equity, are we gaining mass? More than numbers. There's another quantification of things that's not just numbers. It has to do with quality, too. You know, are we gaining qualitative and quantitative mass? So I think the struggle is for enough. Equity is wholeness for the individual. Wholeness for a community individual is enough. And the question is, negotiable is what is enough? And I always ask people, what's enough for you? But the key is, the only reason enough for you works is that's the same thing you should declare as enough for everybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so be, be careful how you go. You have to work to make sure everybody else has that too. And not everything, I said enough. What's enough for you? That's the floor for humanity. So it's almost like we need to be having a conversation about the floor. We need to be working towards having a floor. Was it Bono or somebody with his group to talk about stupid poverty now? The world has now enough resources that all poverty is stupid. Hunger, most diseases can be eliminated with the sources we have today without even radical redistribution of wealth. We got warehouses. We got needs. So what's messed up? 
the supply lines are messed up. And they're clogged by war, borders, national rivalries, international power plays, and all kinds of crud. It's easy for me to say equity, that's a good we should be striving for. And yet when I look at that system that's not distributing things like that, I think there are a lot of people who actually don't even see equity as necessarily a good thing. Mm -hmm. And that's where I wonder, if you were to make the case that equity is good, Mm-hmm. You know, to someone who might not see the systems that we've been talking about. And they might say, well, equity, they, they can find it and make it themselves. White steel workers were made by U.S. Steel in Alabama to feel proud. They made 20 and 30% more than black steel workers doing the same work. They didn't pay much attention to the fact they made 4% less than white steel workers in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> So a lot of us are like the white Alabama steelworker. If I got somebody to be better than, that covers me thinking about having much more than I have, right? I can be satisfied with my lot if I'm convinced I got more than somebody else. Racism works the same way. That's what blinds us to equity and what enough is. Unions were a very good collective form for talking about what enough is. But first, they had to equate themselves with being equal to the owners. The owner had the capital. We have the labor. Only by educating themselves of the equality of your gift to the equation. I brought something to the table. So maybe equity is valuing what everybody brings to the table. Not valuing what I bring to the table and devaluing what you bring to the table. There's no way to get there. There's no way to get there. So the way to get towards equity is not to argue for equity. It really is to argue for values, you know? The very first conversation I had in this project was with Reverend John Fife in Tucson, Arizona, mm-hmm. who uh, was one of the co-founders of the Sanctuary Movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read about him. Uh, but he got into talking about how, for him, there's an interest in equity, and equity comes from people are created in God's image, they are equal, the nation is this ridiculous little man-made contrivance and splitting people up. His equity is, is backed up by a spirituality. Mm-hmm. And in every conversation I have in this series, whether someone is a hardcore atheist or a theist or something in between, I always try to get to that, like, why is this good? Um, in our conversation, why is equity good? Yeah. Without valuing equity... We'll be, I'll explain what I mean, but we'll be forced to always wrestle with an a-spiritual accounting where we count stuff. We'll be trying to determine who's worthy and who's not with a starting point of now. (laughs) It's like human progress is a video, not a steel shot. (laughs) And nobody has the right to freeze the frame. Everybody just stop in place. And now we'll judge equity on those conditions. If you do it that way, then the poorest of people, then what it takes to make, then your math, your calculus has to be what everything that it takes to make them whole has to come from us who have more than enough. 
then the video starts in your head and you start saying the future then is a future of me losing and their winning only at the at my expense you only see it from yourself out and if the world has resources that are neither yours or theirs it's still yours <laughs> because you have the tools to access those resources if equity it, I'm glad you mentioned that. It, it is spiritual because it involves an accounting that we cannot follow using the old methods. You know, people, people talk about win-win. There is a possibility of win-win. Not that you will be astronomically richer, but you'll be wonderfully better. Um, you'll be happier. You'll feel definitely less threatened. Without anybody else doing anything else in the world, your contribution to equity, you'll feel better. You feel most. You you will feel and be more secure. You will be protected, right? Because the defenders of equity are powerful, <laughs> right? Because the guy at the Defense Department, sustain sustainment. Yes, sustainment is about equity. It really incorporate many of his forms because. In the normal balance of defense, it's us against them. In sustainment defense, it's us with us. Okay. Right. And there is no them. You know, there are huge implications, right? Because we think of everything as competitive. I know it, but you remember, they lie about John Kennedy. He used a trick on the United States. When he announced the moon program, Everybody said, we're going to compete against the Soviet Union. I have believed that John Kennedy was competing against the moon. <laughs> because what really drove people to a level of discipline, well, the clock was the Soviet Union, but the destination was the moon. It was the destination, not the clock. <laughs> because if the clock had been the one, we probably would have lost more people in, in, in the early testing and stuff. <laughs> that thing contributed, that, that project contributed so much to the United States. But the only way we could understand it, and probably the only way you got it through Congress, quite frankly, was to compete against the Soviet Union in the race to the moon. It's like with, with isometrics. <laughs> yes. To give us the social and political isometrics. So maybe the challenge is, what are the isometrics? The only against we need it's something to push against. Seems like we kind of tie a bunch of elements from our conversation together here, where you have to have the grayware to see the structures well enough to realize equity globally is in your self-interest individually. Yes. So in a way, we're, we've been talking about social equity. Um, other people would probably take exactly the same structure of our conversation. I mean, I know they have. They've done it in this project and sort of talked about that in an environmental way. So it's interesting that there, beneath all of this stuff, there is a sense that you have to acknowledge your part of being a bigger Oh, yeah. Thing, yeah. Right? That's my big project for where I work at now. I can't say it's ours yet. I haven't really articulated. We assume that the campaigns we worked on, immigration justice and more fun in public transportation, we assume that our campaigns were our goals. But we said, no, our goals are bigger than our campaign. We adopt our campaign, this is a new thing, because of our goal. The transformation I'm looking for in, as, as part of this stuff is how do more and more people increasingly see themselves as producers of the future 
not just consumers of the future, not just of stuff, mm -hmm. but of quality of life. Uh, we say it takes more to be poor than it used to. <laughs> it's more expensive to be poor than it used to. And it, it, it really is. But people have been beaten up. The whole thing about takers. There are people who have been convinced that's who they are. They've also been convinced that that's the best they can hope for. People like to see themselves as making things. And they, like, they like to be producers. They hate the story of Little Red Hen where everybody wants to eat the bread and nobody wants to bake it. <laughs> you know, but also, the, what is the bread? The bread is the quality of life of our, our families, our communities, our neighborhoods, our cities, our states. It's not for them, the politicians, to make it and us to consume it. As long as we're a producer-consumer dichotomy, then there is no end game to it. There is no winning for us because they will produce enough to keep us consumers, and we will consume so much, they will always be producers. And I'm saying we are the producers. Equity, there is a community of brokers rather than the broker. So we've had this, this conversation about equity. It seems to have left us at the point where we're asking the question of how do we get ourselves to say, well, we're part of this bigger system. We're going to take the responsibility for it. And we're going to strive towards equity. And part of that, of course, is seeing the bigger system, yeah. or at least feeling the bigger system. Do you think we adequately feel that or see that now? No, no. I don't know if we get there with the language we start with. Mm -hmm. And so maybe what the question is, what's the starting language? Language is a huge thing. Language is loaded. Language is loaded. It is so loaded. Maybe the solution to this is not a social analyst, but a linguist. We can't talk about the future with the language of the past. The language of the past carries with it the values, structures. It carries the baggage of the past. And we have to be careful about our language because unknowingly we will infect the future. As this bishop said in, uh, in a meeting here some years ago, he said, be careful who makes the definitions because those who made the definitions control the outcomes. <laughs> so you can really have a, a language set up that you can't win. Like Alabama State Constitution, winning is prohibited. <laughs> yeah. So if, we, if we're having difficulty with the language to talk about the future now, are you optimistic that's something that we'll be able to change? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've got who said, but Cornell West talked about it. He says, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> That's what he said, yeah. Optimism requires evidence. Hope doesn't. <laughs> so you're hopeful. I'm hopeful. While the jury is still out, a note will be sent to the jury room with new information <laughs> that would change the deliberations in a way you would anticipate. Do you think the stakes are any higher now? Um, I, I think they're faster moving. I mean, you look at what? The big epochs in human, modern human development from the Renaissance the problems they had with Earth being Galileo and the church, you know, that's pretty big. The discovery, quote unquote, of Americas, the justifications of slavery by people who were of two consciences, the debates among the Native Americans about this, this stranger <laughs> with their weird ways. Uh, those are big conversations of earth-shaking consequences. I, I think it'll happen more quickly. Uh, the next big one. The news is coming out increasingly, and with Hurricane Sandy, even as the resistance saying the 
global warming is a, is a myth. Mm-hmm. Well, global warming is not a myth. You could argue about the consequences of it, but you can't argue with the thermostat. <laughs> Use your thermostat. <laughs> okay. Use your survey meter at the glacial areas of the Arctic, okay? Use your time-lapse camera. I think when I talk to people in this project who have a real sense that the stakes are, are higher, because some people argue that this is a really unique moment, and other people say not not so much. There are always historical big moments of change. Mm-hmm. This, this is the last are, one. Yeah, and a lot of people who are like, this is this is the big one, a lot of them point to sort of the environment as, as yeah. something that we've oh, yeah, changed. And others say, well, there's never been a bigger complicated global economic system so this time it's going to be a real big fall because it's so the house of cards is so tall i agree i agree i agree that's a game changer that's a game ender i mean do you think these are things we can anticipate some of these problems like can we intellectually get to the point where we go oh you know we're really part of this bigger system or do we have to have a crisis you hear about you learn from experience right mine is i found out (laughs) The only experiences you learn from are the ones you learn from. <laughs> the bottom line is just have an experience, don't teach you anything. <laughs> you gotta choose to learn. And cho- therefore you gotta choose what you learn. I, I love that, you know, it's so easy to get into platitudes and to say, oh, well, we learn from experience and I'm sure if we have enough of a catastrophe, we'll improve in some way. And I, I, Scott just lets the air right out of that concept. And it's really, it's a nice way to leave an episode. Yeah, I really like that comment, actually. And uh, it's funny because I was listening to it and I was thinking about this sort of earlier concern uh, that you and Micah had about whether or not to you know, even interview Scott Douglas. And uh, I thought, gosh, there's actually really something in his last comment here that proves why it's such a good idea to interview somebody. Uh, like him. And for me, it's because his worldview is, I think, so wide. And, uh, you know, so did the civil rights movement originally. But I think oftentimes the lessons of the civil rights movement are really narrow, actually, as they get depicted in popular culture. And I think often we have the assumption that the civil rights movement was just about race, and that's it. And there, I think we wouldn't be learning too much from the past if that's the only thing we thought the civil rights movement was about. But, of course, it was also about class, not just race. Uh, and, uh, you know, examples would include, you know, the reason that Martin Luther King went to Memphis, of course, was to help out a strike. Uh, there's also, of course, the 1964 March on Washington, which included union workers, big intersection between the labor movement and the civil rights movement. And you can see that still in what Scott Douglas is doing, this combination of race and class. Uh, so for me, that last comment says, hey, look, there's a lot to learn about history, and let's make sure we learn it. Yeah, and I think that's really one of the, the big overriding themes of this whole conversation. And uh, I like that for him, this stuff all, it grows out of his practice. He's helping people in his community. Part of that is addressing race issues. Part of that is addressing class issues. Part of that is addressing immigration issues. It's kind of woven together in his interests, in his philosophy. There's something I kind of want to jump into here, the, uh, the individual versus the collective. I love that he just put his finger right on it, and then it's something we've talked about in the outros of a lot of these different conversations. It is such a classic theme. <laughs> the Greeks love to write about this. We're always trying to balance it. What do you think of, of how Scott does that? 
You know, I think it's really interesting because he doesn't say, hey, look, you know, this is only about community or only about the collective. He's like, yeah, the individual matters, right? He kind of like almost cut himself off there a little bit to, to make sure that we understood that, that about the way he thinks. Uh, but obviously, you know, he's uh, thinking about community in, in a big, important way. And, you know, as you mentioned, that's kind of where his ideas come from. But I was kind of curious. This strikes me as dramatically different than, uh, say, Oliver Porter. And I was curious, you know, how much of a response you think this is to an Oliver Porter way of thinking. Yeah, and you know, there are these moments in the project where it feels like with no planning on our part, we have people who really seem to speak to each other. Robert Zubrin and Wes Jackson did that earlier in the project. And in a way, I feel that there's, there are many connections between Oliver Porter and Scott Douglas. Porter gives us a worldview that's skewed heavily towards the individual, that's much more competitive, Douglas talks about situations that are win-win, even though he's still very interested in individual agency. He has a sense of collective responsibility. I mean, it sure made me think of Chuck Collins. It certainly made me think of Mark Mickleby. I mean, a lot of that involves thinking of yourself as an us, not as a me. So we follow that road again here with Scott, but we follow it from sort of a different direction, right? He brings in religion in the way that, that Fife did early on. So while Collins and Mickleby both give us these sort of really pragmatic reasons, like here are social, structural reasons that you should think about the collective more, Douglas says, well, that's true, but that sort of quantification only gets you so far, right? You've got to have a deeper reason to care about us. Right, and it kind of goes back to me to this really kind of careful distinction he made between uh, consciousness and having a conscience, Mm -hmm. I I thought that that was a really sort of interesting turn of phrase that he used. And this sort of wide view of the world is just as important as considering yourself a moral being who makes the right choice when there's a choice, uh, you know, in front of yourself. Uh, And in fact, it kind of seemed like the two were pretty well related. I don't know. What was your thinking there? Yeah. And, you know, just hearing you kind of frame it that way, I can almost see conscience and consciousness as being connected to the individual and the collective, right? If you're striving for a better world, the individual needs to have conscience. The collective needs to be something that there's consciousness of, which I like. Maybe that is the way, like, where those terms are connected to the governance question. That question spiderwebs out into a lot of the other things that he chooses to bring up in this conversation. On one hand, we could look at the way he talks about history and the way we conceptualize the future. I love the way he gives us this vision of the future approaching us, and we can't quite make it out. We have all these different visions, and then it's in the moment, and we can't. We all see it differently. And then it's in the rearview mirror, and we can't quite see it very well there either. To some extent, we're always manufacturing these narratives about the world. As we're manufacturing these narratives, conscience and consciousness have a huge amount of influence on what kind of narratives we're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think for me, I mean, there's a, kind of a couple examples that fit really nicely with that framing. And when, you know, we think about this importance between the uh, labor movement and the civil rights movement, and sort of having that wide consciousness of the past. But then also, you know, as he mentions, there's also that other horizon too, the future. And how do you have as big a consciousness as you can about that? And I think he's really trying. He's doing it by looking at his community, right? And he's sees another important thing on the horizon, which, you know, for the American South is uh, Hispanic immigration. And he sees that as intimately tied up with, you know, class in the United States, with race in the United States. 
And it seems like that's an easy move to make about the future. It's easy to have that wide consciousness about the future if you've already got that wide consciousness about the past. Of course, I mean, we're both historians, and so we like to tell the story this way. <laughs> we right, like right. to pretend yeah. <laughs> that history matters and that that's why he's pursuing these goals. Um, but this is, a, I mean, this is a deeply historical conversation that he has. Well, Douglas isn't the only person in the conversation, of course, uh, to play such a strong importance on the past. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, for example, Douglas Rushkoff talked about present shock, and I'm curious, you know, what your take is on how Rushkoff might intersect with Douglas. Aha, uh-huh. so we've got the Scott Douglas Douglas Rushkoff connection here. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a Douglas conversation. I was I was getting confused with which which Douglas are we on? Are we last name Douglas or first name Douglas? Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point, right? Because Scott Douglas is talking about we're sort of in this present when we can't perceive the future. Douglas Rushkoff is talking about we are in a historically unprecedented moment of being just deluged in information and having to be in multiple places at once through technology which makes it impossible to even perceive the present, let alone dream about the future. If we want to work towards a better future, do we need to address some of these information issues about the present so we can even get into the point of dreaming about the future? Is Scott Douglas's vision for the future something that has to wait until we can catch up with the present? And that's where I wonder, have we really lost the present in the same way that that Rushkoff claims we have. So something that seems relevant here to me uh, is the historical example that Scott Douglas gave of the moon and the need for this sort of outside motivation of, you know, competing with the Soviet Union, for example, to really overcome the sort of challenge that was really there, which was, you know, landing a person on the moon. (laughs) And uh, I wonder if, you know, there's a way in which all of this could be framed as trying to overcome some sort of national challenge. Right. And if Rushkoff is right with his diagnosis of present shock, does specifying an outside challenge or something to push against a moon landing or a space colonization or solving a great environmental problem, could that be enough of a unifying force to bring a coherent narrative together that it feels like maybe we can focus on the present? and work towards a future? Do we need, like, a unifying narrative? I mean, that actually ties us back to Mickleby, too. Right. Um, it ties us back to, in a more spiritual sense, David Corton, who was talking about we need a new master narrative that tells us that we're all part of one system. And maybe that's kind of the ultimate takeaway from this conversation. It's what is the challenge without that can uh, get us away from the sort of Hobbesian world that we've seen elsewhere in this project? And I'm sure somebody else in this project will bring up what exactly that challenge without will be. That was Scott Douglas, recorded at Greater Birmingham Ministries in Birmingham, Alabama, on the 30th of November, 2012. And you are, of course, listening to The Conversation. Find us on the web at findtheconversation.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Angus Anderson. I'm Micah Saul. I'm Neil Prendergast. And I'm Angus Anderson. Thanks for listening.